Alright, as the children are being dismissed, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and open them to Genesis chapter 24. Taking a look uh, this morning, Lord willing, at verses 61 through 67. The title of our message this morning is The Importance of Faith. The Importance of Faith. I want to thank Gabe for filling in last week. He gave a great sermon on the Bema Seat. I was just at the Bema Seat. Not not the heaven one, the one on the earth in uh, Corinth. And that's the, I'll explain more about it later, but that's the, the political situation that Paul used to teach a spiritual lesson that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> we are in the midst of a series going through the book of Genesis verse by verse. We are finishing up, believe it or not, the life of Abraham. Next week, he's going to die. I mean, he died already, but he's going to die in the passage that we're going to study next week. So this is really the tail end of his life. We've seen the miraculous birth of his son named Isaac. And Isaac needs a wife. Because if Isaac doesn't have a wife, we can't have a Jacob. And if we don't have a Jacob, we can't have the 12 tribes. And if we don't have the 12 tribes, we can't have a very special tribe named Judah through which the Messiah is going to come. This is why the Holy Spirit has given us 67 verses. It must be one of the longest chapters in the Bible on this marriage between Abraham's son, Isaac, and Rebekah. When Abraham observed that his son needed a wife, verses 1 through 9, he sent his servant specific instructions that he is not to get a wife for his son from amongst the Canaanites, but he is to go back to Abraham's own family lineage up in Haran, and to retrieve a wife for Isaac. That's a 450-mile journey. And so this servant, who is loyal to Abraham's instructions all the way, prays, God does a work and unites Rebekah with the servant. The servant meets Rebekah's family, including her father, and also her brother named Laban. There is now the betrothal of Isaac and Rebekah. Rebekah not even having met Isaac. And then we come to verses 61 through 67, which is what we've been waiting for, the marriage. We can divide up this paragraph as follows. And so here is the outline we're going to try to work through 
as we take a look at this paragraph here, verses 61 through 67. There is now the journey back from Haran to what then was called Canaan, later called the land of Israel, where Rebekah and Isaac will be united. You'll notice the journey from Haran and the arrival back in Canaan. Notice, if you will, Genesis 24, notice verse 61. It says, Then Rebekah arose with her maids, and they mounted the camels and followed the man. Now the man here would be Abraham's servant, arguably Eliezer of Damascus. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. You know, it's just tempting to read that and just read read roughshod, I should say, right over it and not understand the length of the journey. That's where the servant and Rebecca are in Haran, the top circle. And they now have to make their way back into Canaan, which is a 450-mile journey. So this is pre-airplane, pre-helicopter, pre-jeep. And my point is, Rebecca, having never made that journey, having never met Isaac, has to completely step out in faith. Now, one of the points that we've made as we've gone through this is this marriage between Isaac and Rebecca is a type, if you will, a prefigurement, if you will, of our marriage to Jesus Christ. The book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse, verses 22 through 33, very clearly portrays our relationship to Jesus as bride to groom. We are the um, bride. He is the groom. Soon, subsequent to the rapture, we will not just be engaged, but we will be married. Presently, we are um, what we might call in modern day culture, a woman spoken for. We are engaged to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that it took a faith step by Rebecca to acquiesce or agree to this journey to enter this marriage. And it's true in our relationship to the Lord. You cannot get into this relationship to the Lord unless you're willing to take a faith step. God has designed it that way. The book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. You hear the gospel. You may not have every single answer and every objection in your mind resolved, but at some point you have to trust the Lord. You have to take a faith step. This is why the Bible tells us at least 160 times that salvation is accomplished through a single step, the metaphorical step of faith. Dr. Lewisbury Chafer called this belief 
God's one condition for justification. Chafer says, because upwards of 150 passages of Scripture condition salvation upon believing only. He quotes there in parenthesis the two famous ones, John 3.16, which you know well, no doubt, and Acts 16, verse 31, where the Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas in the book of Acts, what must I do to be saved? And they gave a very simple answer. The answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And your household. Because presumably the Philippian jailer would take the message back to his household and they too would be saved. But you'll notice how simple justification before God is. Justification essentially means a declaration of righteousness. It's like a a jury verdict. Not guilty, for example. That a person receives, it's an announcement from heaven, the moment they trust Christ. Because the moment they trust Christ, faith alone, for their salvation, is the moment the Lord takes the righteousness of His Son and transfers it to our account. This is a doctrine called imputation. And God now looks at us as if we were just as righteous, positionally speaking, as Jesus Christ. We are that woman in the white dress, engaged to be married, that's spoken for. And that only happens when a person does one thing. 150, I would argue, 160 times minimum, it says believe in Jesus Christ. At some point you have to step out in faith, which simply means to rely upon, to depend upon, to have confidence in the message of the gospel. If a person uh, is unwilling to do that, they cannot be saved on the authority of God's word any more than Rebecca could be married to Isaac if she was not willing to trust the servant who was taking her from what she knew, her comfort zone, Haran, and taking her to a land that she had never visited, the land of Canaan, to marry a man that she had never met before, Isaac, And isn't it like that with our relationship to Jesus? He wants to take you to a place that you've never been before, the Father's house. And he simply says, although you've never met me, I want you to trust me. And the moment in a person's mind when they trust in that message, just like that, they receive the transferred righteousness of Jesus Christ. The world of religion has made this arrangement so complicated, it's difficult to ferret your way through what all of the different religious authorities say about it. At some point you have to forget the religious authorities and look to God and his word, and you'll see a very simple equation, a very simple formula. Faith alone, in Christ alone, saves. End of story.
the world looks at that and says it can't be that simple. There must be something else to it. But the Bible tells you that it is a free gift from God. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 to 9, talking about how simple all of this is, says, and it's um, a classic passage on the subject, For by grace, that's unmerited favor, you have been saved through faith, what we're speaking of here, faith, and that not of yourselves. In other words, it's nothing you do by way of religiosity or good works that gains you this. Not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And maybe that's the reason why God has made this so easy. Because once you receive the transferred righteousness of Christ via imputation, you have no bragging rights because you receive that as a free gift. So you're not going to have people in heaven in eternity, you know, strutting around as proud as a peacock. That's why we've entitled this this uh, sermon, The Importance of Faith. And now that Rebecca has stepped out in faith, now that the servant is bringing Rebecca back to the land of Canaan, now we have the encounter with Isaac. And you see that there in verse 62. Now Isaac had come from going to Beer Lahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. Now, where exactly is this area? Charles Ryrie says, Beer Lahai Roy means a well of the living, one who sees me. The exact location is unknown, though possibly it was southwest of Beersheba. So it gives the specific area where this was, but the general area you'll notice there in verse 62 is the Negev, which is basically the southern area of what today we call uh, the land of Israel. And we've run into this uh, name before, Bir Lahai Roy, if I'm pronouncing that right. That's where Hagar Genesis 16, fled. God comforted Hagar, or the angel of the Lord comforted Hagar by revealing to her that what was happening in her womb was a special child named Ishmael, who, like Isaac yet to be born, had a divine destiny. And so she named that area uh, Beer Lahai Roy, meaning God sees. It says there in Genesis 16, verse 14, Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Behold, it was between Kadesh and Berid, and it was a very special place where the Lord saw. The Lord saw the weeping of Hagar. He saw her heart. He saw her emotions. He saw her action. And he ministered to her accordingly. One of the things to understand about God is God loves everybody. And if you find yourself today in a state of being emotionally distressed, 
God wants to minister to you at the deepest level. He did that with Hagar. And now, as the course of time has unfolded, uh, that actually is where Isaac was dwelling. And one of the things that's always impressed me about Scripture is the fact that it gives these geographical areas. The Bible wants us to understand that these things actually happened. This is history. This is not Jack and the Beanstalk. This is not Veggie Tales. This is not some tall tale someone wove together. These are real people that God really loves with real problems and real issues. And God wants to meet people at their deepest level of need. That has to be one of the most amazing truths of the Bible is that the God of the universe even cares about us. I mean, he's so grand and we're so small. And yet the Bible teaches that the very hairs on our head are numbered. I don't know if we can understand everything there is to know about God, but I know this much that God loves you. God loves you so much that he made provision for you for your salvation. And if you were the only person on planet Earth, I believe the plan of salvation via the death of Jesus Christ would have been executed just for you. Because God loves the world generically, but he also loves you individually. And this is that special place where later Isaac um, is dwelling. You look at verse 63 and you see what Isaac is doing as he meets his wife. He's not, you know, twiddling his thumbs. He's going about business as normal. He's taking care of responsibilities. A lot of people single... And they think all of their problems are going to be solved by getting married. Sometimes you talk to someone very young, a young woman perhaps, and she'll tell me, you know, I don't know if I like all this teaching that you do on the rapture and the any moment appearance of Christ. And I say, why not? And she'll say, well, I want to get married. And then you talk to her about six months into marriage and she'll say, what was, what were you saying about the rapture again? <laughs> but so many people, they're, they're focused on meeting Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright. And the truth of the matter is God wants you to do what he's called you to do now. Because if you can't be faithful to God now as a single person, How in the world are you going to be faithful to God as a married person? And so the best thing you can do in order to meet your future spouse, significant other, whatever name you want to give it, is to do what God has called you to do now because the Bible says if you're faithful with the little things, then you can be trusted with what? Greater things. And this is what Isaac is doing. I mean, he's not um, going around complaining about how sad he is, how lonely he is. He's going about the business of the Lord. That's essentially what Rebecca was doing in Haran. But notice verse 63. Isaac went out to meditate in the field, 
toward evening, he lifted up his eyes and behold, and looked and behold, camels were coming. You'll notice uh, this word here, meditate. I've got it underlined in my Bible. Isaac went out to meditate. Isaac, the best I can tell, had a place where he met with the Lord regularly for his devotional life. And how important that is. In fact, this word meditate is what we would call a hapax legomena, meaning it's a word in Hebrew used only here in the Bible. It's only used of Isaac. It's not used of anyone else. The concept is there for others, but this specific Hebrew word is only used of Isaac. And Isaac, I believe, had a spiritual discipline where he met, he went to meditate, a special place where God would speak to him and he would speak to the Lord via prayer. And as you go through the Bible, what you'll start to discover is all of the greats had this special place where they met the Lord via spiritual discipline daily. Daniel 6 and verse 10 of Daniel, one of the greats of the Bible, it says, When Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, and he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, it says, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. In fact, so consistent was Daniel's devotional life that Daniel's enemies understood that the only way we're going to get Daniel thrown into the lion's den is if we pass a law making prayer illegal. The edict was passed according to the laws and customs of the Persians. The edict could not be revoked. And Daniel knew that the law had been passed, and he went and prayed publicly anyway. This is what got him thrown into the lion's den. You know, there's a mindset amongst Christians that says it doesn't matter what the government tells you to do. You've got to comply. Now, generally speaking, we try to work within the state and comply with what the government wants us to do. But as God is my witness, folks, the day is not too far away when the government will start telling you to do things that the Bible forbids. The day is coming when pastors, particularly, are going to be put under tremendous pressure by the state to marry a same-sex couple. And if you don't do it, the punishment is the process. We will punish you financially. We will drag your name through the mud. And before that time period hits, and I believe it's coming very rapidly, in fact, it's already happening with members of the creative industry, bakers, for example, if you've followed the case of Jack Phillips, where a same-sex couple came into his place of establishment and said, you know, we want a same-sex wedding cake. And Jack Phillips said, I'm sorry, as an evangelical Christian, I can't do that. 
Now here's uh, a few phone numbers and addresses of other cake decorators in the area that will do it, but I can't do it. And they say, we're going to take you to court. If they can do it to Jack Phillips, they could do it to Sugarland Bible Church. They could do it to any pastor in the country. And you better make up your mind right now what's more important to you. Obeying God or being coerced into using your abilities to condone something that the Bible says is sinful and a perversion. Daniel through his prayer life, made the right decision. He suffered for it, but he made the right decision. What gave Daniel a spine to stand up? It was his prayer life. It was his daily meetings with the Lord. Daniel, later on, would receive from God the prophecy of the 70 weeks. And when did Daniel receive that? While he had been praying and while he had been studying. Daniel 9 verses 2 and 3 says, In the first year of the reign, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of the years which was revealed as the word of the Lord Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. Daniel is in prayer because he's reading Jeremiah. That's how he knew how long the Babylonian captivity would last. It's Its duration is exactly 70 years. It's in Jeremiah 25, verse 11, and Jeremiah 29, verse 10, if you're interested. And so he began to petition the Lord. The 70 years is coming to an end, and he moved out in prayer. The word and prayer. The word, God is speaking to Daniel. Prayer, Daniel is speaking to God. That's what a devotional life is. And God showed up. By giving to Gabriel, who gave to Daniel, a time clock of 490 years that we call the 70 weeks prophecy. Which is a prophecy that is absolutely indispensable in terms of understanding God's blueprint for the end times. If you don't understand the 70 weeks prophecy, you have absolutely no idea of what is coming upon the earth, yet future. And yet Daniel received it when he was in prayer and in the word. He had a time of meditation. Isaac is about ready to receive his wife. One of the high points of his whole life, obviously. And yet this blessing came because he was in that place of meditation. He was practicing the spiritual discipline of prayer and of allowing the Lord to speak to him. And, you know, so many times we wonder, you know, why isn't God blessing our lives the way that we would like? Have we neglected first principles? I mean, are we so busy focused on what we don't have that we're not 
practicing the spiritual disciplines of prayer and the word. I mean, has, has Christianity eclipsed your relationship with Christ? That can happen. Where you get so busy with everything else that you forget first principles. You know what? I need to pray. And I need to be in the word. And as I'm studying the Bible, that's when God moves his hand and blesses. This happened with Daniel. This is about to happen here uh, with Isaac. Uh, Corey Tin Boom, you may know that name. Famous Christian when you study her, her life and ministry. She says, quote, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. A man is powerful on his knees. We think that human activity can suddenly get things done, which you can do a lot of things through human activity. But if you want God's hand to move in your life, get back to first principles. Meet the Lord regularly. Have have an appointment with God. Pray regularly. Study his word regularly. I mean, I mean, do this outside the domain of the church. Obviously, here in church, we will teach the word of God. We will pray. But there should be something going on in the life of each child of God, whereby we're meeting him daily through meditation and prayer. And it's in that time that the Lord will give you some of the greatest insights you've ever had. And he'll move his hand in your life and open doors that you never thought would open. And so this is what uh, Isaac is doing. He's in that place of meditation. It says, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward the evening. And look at this. He lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, the camels were coming. And on one of those camels is his wife. I doubt Isaac planned it this way. But this is how God works. This is what God was doing. And so now you drop down to verses 64 and 65, and you have Rebekah's first encounter with Isaac. Notice, uh, if you will, verse 64. It says, now Rebekah, who's making this 450-mile journey with the servant from Haran, Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. Arnold Fruchtenbaum of these verses says, Genesis 24, verses 64 through 65, records Rebekah's encounter with verse 64 giving the occasion. And Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she alighted from the camel. That must be the King James translation. By the way, um, if you're ever in a Bible trivia situation and the subject comes up, our cigarettes mentioned in the Bible, well, there it is. She lit her camel. Now, I got that from my wife, so... It says here, the Hebrew word for alighted is nafal, which normally means to fall. The picture being 
conveyed is that when she saw Isaac, she fell off her camel. This did not happen because she knew who he was, because the event happened before she knew who he was. Therefore, when she saw Isaac, something about Isaac's demeanor or looks or whatever caused her to fall off her camel. If ever there was an implication of love at first sight, this may very well be it. Again, this was before she knew who he was, because only in verse 65 is Isaac identified with her. So she does something recognizing that this man that she's just met is not just an ordinary man. I mean, this is potentially her her mate, her spouse. And it says in verse 65 what she did. She said to the servant, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, he is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says of this veil, that was in keeping with the custom of those days that the bride's face was veiled on the wedding night. Nevertheless, realizing that Isaac is the one she is going to marry in keeping with the tradition of a bride veiling her face on the wedding night, she veiled her face. She obviously knows this is not just a normal person, this guy Isaac. He's going to play a very special role in my life. I'm going to marry him. And she knew at the moment she looked at him. Charles Ryrie says of the veil in this verse, the veil, a sign of modesty and respect, was large enough to wrap around the face and the body. Modesty before marriage. Oh my goodness, how we've lost sight of this. The idea that you... Show yourself in public sexually before you're married with leaving very little to the imagination. Let's just leave it at that. It is an idea that is so foreign to the workings of God, it's, it's incomprehensible how far we've slid in. I mean, every generation struggles with this. But I have never seen, and I don't mean to get on a bandwagon about this, I don't want to condemn anybody, but I have never seen in in my lifetime young women of marriageable age showing absolutely no regard for the principle of modesty to the point where they're willing to put photographs of themselves on social media, essentially bearing it all, leaving very little to the imagination, where once you upload that photograph onto social media, as you know, it's there forever. The fact that so many people, males, females, do this, I just wonder what has happened to our society. What has happened to our culture? That body that God has blessed you with belongs to your future husband. And the husband's body belongs to his future wife. That's not there to flaunt for the world to see. And 
so many young women are frustrated that I just can't find a nice guy. Can't find a Christian man. Well, what do you expect when you do this and what do you think you're going to attract? Flaunt yourself, you flaunt your God-given body, and you're going to attract um, suitors that are basically interested in one thing. They don't care about you. They don't, they don't care about your temperament. They don't care about your likes or your dislikes. They don't care about your what the Lord is showing you in your devotional life. They don't care what your favorite book of the Bible is. They're interested in your body. And you put yourself into that situation by flaunting yourself in a way that's inappropriate prior to marriage. I hope that we are teaching our children and our grandchildren the principles of modesty. I thank God for my wife, who many times before my daughter leaves the house will say, eh, that's not quite appropriate. Doesn't yell at her, doesn't scream at her. Not quite appropriate. You're going to sort of attract the wrong crowd with a dress like that, and here's why. And how we need that sort of teaching in the home amongst a wicked and perverse society that has basically lost sight of the God-given principle of modesty. And, And most pastors would be afraid to talk about this because you're categorized as a prude, puritanical, legalistic, forget all that. Let's just talk about biblical. Let's talk about the need for, for modesty. You know, the, 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 the sexualization of our culture is so bad that I remember growing up, there was actually like a family viewing hour. Uh, our family used to watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom where the guy with the gray hair would sit in the helicopter and the other young guy would fight all the snakes and all that. Does anybody remember that? Or am I, am I dating myself? Um, I remember watching growing up Disney movies when Disney was very different than it is today. And just sort of having like a, a family hour, a family time. I mean, it was like a safe zone. I don't even know if such a thing exists anymore. I don't even know if it's possible to watch the Super Bowl without its halftime show, which will put into your mind every purient, sexually charged thought that you can think of. This is the the type of culture that we're living in today. Very, very sadly, young Christian people are being seduced by it and walking according to the principles of the world by bearing publicly what God designed for their future spouse. May God help us to understand this. I mean, uh, Rebecca lifted up her eyes when she saw Isaac. She dismounted from the camel. It says at the end of verse 65 that she took her veil and covered herself. And our relationship to Jesus Christ is analogized to groom and bride. 
And in a spiritual sense, we as God's people need to be modest. We need to act as if we are a woman spoken for, spiritually speaking. Because when that young lady comes down that aisle for marriage, there's a reason she's in that white dress. That white dress communicates something in this culture. It communicates purity. And since I'm engaged to Jesus Christ, maybe I ought to exercise some purity. Maybe I shouldn't just go out and live my life the way I want. Maybe I ought to act like a woman spoken for. The book of James, chapter 1, verse 27, says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. The world does not want your practice as a Christian to be consistent with your position of who you are. And this is how Satan seeks to discredit the gospel in your life. Where the unsaved world says, oh, I'm not going to listen to so-and-so, they're just as ungodly as the heathen. Let me tell you something about an out-of-fellowship Christian. An out-of-fellowship Christian can out-sin an unbeliever. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Where he says, you know, the type of sin going on in Corinth is so bad that, in this case involving incest, that the pagans don't even do this. And you're God's people doing this. I need to walk circumspectly, consistent with my identity in Christ. And how do I demonstrate that I'm a woman spoken for? Two ways. Orthodoxy, that's correct belief. Orthopraxy, correct practice. That's how you act like a woman spoken for. You keep your doctrine straight. You don't get into weird doctrines, and there's plenty of them out there. And you let your ortho, as an orthodontist, correcting the mouth, orthopraxy, orthodoxy, orthodoxy, correct belief, orthopraxy, correct practice, you let your lifestyle, what we talk about, what we value, what we pursue, be consistent with your position. That's how you act like that woman in a, in a white dress. That's how you veil yourself in a world that's trying to stain you. And the moment you're stained, you can't speak for Jesus anymore. Because your life is inconsistent. And the unsaved world, they all see it. In fact, the favorite attack point of unsaved people is always hypocrisy, isn't it? They don't want to hear the evidence of the empty tomb. They don't want to hear the, 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 the evidence of fulfilled prophecy. They don't want to hear all of the apologetic arguments that we give here at Sugarland Bible Church. You know what they want to see? They want to see authenticity. If your life is consistent with your position, you've got a pulpit. People will listen to that. Because they want to know, is this, is this Christianity thing, is it real or not? 
And your ministry opportunities and my ministry opportunities start to drastically shrink the moment there's a a lack of harmony between orthopraxy and orthodoxy. So this is not just a, a point here, verse 65, about modesty in American culture and in American Christianity. This is actually a point about the walk of the child of God. And God will, he can and he will help every single one of us when we stumble or fail in this area. I personally, won't go into details, have stumbled and fallen in this Many times, some bigger falls than others. Some mostly the watching world doesn't see. But the truth of the matter is those fumbles and those falls, God sees them. And he has something higher for us. He has something better for us. So you go down to verse 66 and now the servant as Rebecca and the servant are returning from Haran, meet, the servant reports to Isaac. And notice, if you will, verse 66. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. So there's no doubt what's on Isaac's mind, this bride, There's no doubt what's on Abraham's mind because Abraham gave the servant specific instructions regarding where to gain Isaac's bride. So the servant, who could be Eliezer of Damascus, has executed and done everything his master, Abraham and Isaac, said. And so what you see there in verse 66 is accountability. In other words, the servant's performance was consistent with the original oath. Remember earlier in the chapter, the servant took a solemn oath? We described the solemnness of that, where he was told exactly what he had to do. And the only way he could get out of it is if Rebecca, the woman, the bride, refused to come. That's the only way the oath was would be obliterated or cut. Well, the servant did exactly what Abraham and indirectly Isaac had asked. And the servant is a type, if you will, of our stewardship before the Lord. It's not just the servant that's accountable here as a steward. It's God's people. You recall the parable of the talents which was a monetary denomination. It says in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 19, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his abilities, and he went out on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole into the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, that's the inner advent age, 
of 2,000 years. Now, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and settled accounts with them. What is a steward? A steward is not an owner, but it's someone who manages something for God. That's who the servant was. He wasn't the owner of Isaac or Rebekah. He was given an assignment from Abraham. And the two are reunited, and there's a point of reckoning, and there's a point of accountability. Where is our point of accountability? It's what Gabe taught on last week. The Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. 1 Corinthians 4 verse 2 says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found what? Trustworthy. Every person in this room has three things from God. These all begin with the letter T. You've got time. You've got talent in one way or another. And you've got treasure. And God has entrusted the three T's to you. And he expects you, while he's gone, to manage those for him. And because he owns them and not you, the day will come where you will stand face to face with Jesus Christ and Jesus will ask you, what did you do with what I gave you? And what God expects of us in that day, and this is not a salvation issue, because salvation is by grace. This is a rewards issue. What God expects of you in that day is faithfulness. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Interesting. It doesn't say, well done, thy good and successful servant. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Were you faithful with what God gave you? That doesn't determine heaven or hell. That determines degrees of reward and degrees of authority in heaven and in the millennial kingdom. And this is why this life will end in judgment for everybody. For unbelievers, it's a horrifying judgment. For believers, it's this judgment of rewards. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 says of Christians, we must, in other words, this is mandatory. You can't opt out of this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Accountability, reckoning, judgment day. The servant this whole time knew that that day was coming and he lived his life accordingly. In the same way, because this life ends in judgment, even for the Christian. We have to order our affairs in such a way that God will say to us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. You were faithful to what I gave you. Yeah, but Lord, I'm not as talented as Michael Jordan. God says, I never called you to be Michael Jordan. I mean, if you were Michael Jordan, you could dunk the basketball and look at yourself today. 
God didn't call me to be Michael Jordan. God called me to be myself. God has given to me myself skills. God has given to you yourself skills and time and treasure. Manage it for God. And and, and don't do it for any other reason other than the fact that the day of accountability is right around the corner. We must all appear before the judgment seat Christ. I think it was Noah Webster. You know Webster's Dictionary? One of the smartest men that's ever lived. One of our great founding fathers. He was asked, what is the most profound thought you've ever had? And that's really something to ask the smartest man, one of the smartest men that's ever lived. What's your most profound thought? And he said very simply, my accountability to God. That's the greatest thought I've ever had. Is that your thoughts? Is that your heart? Clearly, the servant had these thoughts and heart. And we as God's people should think that way as well. And then uh, we get to the marriage. Verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into her mother's mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife. You'll notice that three years later, Sarah's tent was still there next to Abraham's tent. And they had this wonderful ceremony. I would think it was a very simple ceremony. In our time period, we're used to elaborate marital ceremonies. Nothing wrong with that. But in this time period here in the ancient Near East, it was just a simple marriage ceremony, which raises an interesting question. What do you need for a marriage? What makes a marriage? Isn't that what our whole society is debating now? Marriage? As if we're in a position to debate it, having never created it. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says this helps to clarify exactly what a biblical marriage is and is not. A biblical marriage is not merely living together. A lot of people are playing house. A lot of people are shacking. That's what we used to call it. That's not of God. Shacking, living together before you get married, is not of God. This helps to clarify exactly what a biblical marriage is and is not. A biblical marriage is not merely living together, nor is a biblical marriage merely sexual union. It was possible to have a sexual union without marriage, even within the biblical context. However, there were three elements in a biblical marriage. First, There had to be a commitment to one another. She was committed to Isaac, and Isaac was committed to her. There may not have been any love at this point, because, as in the case here, they had only just met. This shows that it is possible to make a commitment without the feeling of love per se. But the commitment to love the one you marry. The second necessary element is the marriage ceremony. 
a ceremony recognized by society to be a marriage ceremony. With different societies, there are different customs, but every society has a ceremony for marriage, such as marrying under a canopy or the custom of exchanging rings and exchanging vows. The third element for a biblical marriage is the first sexual union by which the couple becomes one. He mentions love here, but did you notice verse 67? Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he, that's Isaac, he loved her. You know, you, you do premarital counseling with people. You just ask them a basic question. Why do you want to get married? And they talk about everything other than this. Well, we make a good team. You know, we have the same interest. You hear all this kind of stuff. We have the same interests. I usually interrupt them at that point and I say, that's not what I want to hear. I don't want to hear about you make a good team. I want to hear that you love him. And I want to hear from her that that she loves him and he loves her. And it's only going to be in this church a him-her, folks. Let's just get that straight right now. You guys might have to visit me in my future prison ministry for all (laughs) intents and purposes. And so we have the we have this word love thrown around. Nobody even knows what it means anymore. And I watch the love boat. I must be an expert on the subject, right? What is love? First Corinthians thirteen four through seven. Love is patient. Love is kind. Is is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. You're dealing with people in marriage counseling and you hear all this stuff and finally I say, well, you quit being selfish and you quit being selfish. End of counseling session. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. I've seen situations where two people want to get married and all of a sudden it comes out that one of the parties has a list of grievances against the other. I don't like this. I don't like she said that. She did this. He did that. And I have to wonder at some point, are you all really in love with each other? Because if you're in love, it'll overlook an awful lot, won't it? It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things. So at the slightest problem, the two of you can't split up. You're in this together. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Boy, how we need to understand what love really is. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Isaac saw Rebekah, 
and he loved her. He loved her in the, in the biblical sense. What, what is love at the end of the day? It's, um, it's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. Because if you're looking to get into a marriage to get your needs met, your expectations met, you're going to get disappointed. Because that guy you're marrying is not Jesus. Just ask my wife about that. She'll tell you all about it. And that gal you're marrying is not a perfect person. They have the exact sin nature that you have. Marriage is two sin natures coming together is really what it is. So I want to know, why would you want to do this at all? The answer I want to hear is we we love each other. You love each other biblically? Yeah, we do. Well, then this is going to work out. Because love is going to bear all things. It's going to be patient when human expectations are not met. I don't mean to dogpile on the younger generation at all. Because I know my generation has its issues. But what I'm seeing in youth is people getting married and then within a week the marriage is over. I'm seeing that pattern over and over again. And I think what's happening is people are getting into it with false expectations. And when the expectations aren't met, it's over. And they're not walking out biblical love. An unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. You get two people that are unconditionally committed to each other in spite of each other's imperfections. Now we're talking. This this is a winner. This this is going to last. So Isaac loved her. And at the end of verse 67, it says, Thus Isaac was comforted. After his mother's death. I mean, he obviously is grieved with the death of Sarah. We saw Sarah's death in Genesis 23. She is buried in the cave at Machpelah in Hebron. Her tent, apparently three years later, is still standing. There was a hole in Isaac's heart. And God, I think, naturally filled that hole with his spouse. And now there's new life. There's new promises. There's new realities. I'm not having to live in the past. What's the future hold? What does Paul say in the book of Philippians? He says, forgetting the things that lie behind. I press on for the prize, the upward calling in Christ Jesus. You understand that living in the past, reliving past hurts over and over again will disable your future. We all have a past of some kind. We're victims of something. But I don't have to let it control me. I can focus on the future. I can focus on what God has in store for me. Some of the some of the saddest people I've ever been around are people that are talking about something that happened to them, an injustice, 
And then you kind of start to query them a little bit, question them a little bit. Well, when did this happen? They're talking about things that happened 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And all this time they've been in a state of spiritual lack of growth because they just can't let go of the past. I mean, the past, there's a reason it's called the past, right? It's in the past. Your your best days as a Christian are in front of you. They're not behind you. And don't be a prisoner of your past because of a past hurt. I'm not going to sit here and tell you it doesn't hurt because it does. Things happen to all of us. But I don't have to live a life where I'm constantly looking in the rearview mirror. I can press on to the upward high calling of Jesus Christ. And that's what Isaac chose to do in the wake of three years, his own mother's death. So we've spent several weeks on Isaac's marriage. There's the outline that we've gone through. And now we see the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah, meaning the nation of Israel can go forward. I would encourage you for next time to read Genesis 25 in its entirety. How did things end for Abraham? What about Abraham's progeny? What about the fact that the man is having children up until the age 137? I mean, isn't isn't this the guy that could not impregnate his wife Sarah? And God had to do a work. I mean, God did such a work that the guy just kept having children up to age 137. He's going to marry someone now named Keturah. And why would Genesis tell us about those descendants? So we'll see that. We'll see that next time. But here's the truth we want to leave you with. Do you want to be engaged? Do you want to be engaged to the God that made you? Well, you can do that right now and you can become the bride of Christ by trusting in the provision of Jesus. That provision will not just give you a white dress. It will make you white as snow. Because it's not your righteousness. It's his righteousness exchanged for yours. And you get that with a single condition. Faith alone in Christ alone. That's what does it. And so our exhortation is we're closing here at Sugarland Bible Church. Anybody in the room, anybody listening online, anybody listening to the archives after the fact, is as the Holy Spirit moves and convicts that people would respond to that convicting ministry by placing their faith in Christ alone. It's not something you have to walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, pay money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord places you under conviction and you respond by faith alone in Christ alone. And just like that, the white dress is on. And you are now engaged to the God that didn't just make you but redeemed you. And it's a beautiful thing to enter that relationship. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for 
this ancient story of this marriage and how it speaks to our lives today. Help us to walk out these principles this week. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And God's people said,